Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy is a 10-episode fictional coming-of-age audio drama. Start with episode one and listen in sequence. If you love it, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or join our email list for exclusive content, free tracks, and episode announcements. Happy listening! Sick Picnic Media presents Frederick Julius's Lonely Boy, a novella in sound and color. Written and narrated by Matt Geiler. Episode 1 Summerfall. Welcome, everybody. We're here once again on the Pop and Power podcast. I'm Reg Greeby, bringing you all of the power pop sounds you didn't even know you needed. But once you get them in your ears, you'll jump and holler for more. At least that's what we hope and wish for in our deepest heart of hearts. (laughs) That's the game plan. Anyway, and we're going to get right into it in this episode because our guest is an artist who can truly be called a darling of the underground and indie pop world, although I'm not sure how he feels about that. An artist whose otherworldly harmonies and penchant for darkly humorous and surreal, often very confessional lyrics have drawn comparisons to the Beach Boys, certainly Elliot Smith, Simon and Garfunkel, and who I've always been impressed by his ability to marry his vulnerability with a sense of the whimsical, and with the new album Lonely Boy coming out in September, there's a lot to discuss. We're very pleased and excited to have on the podcast again with us, Frederick Julius. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me, Reg. I always love talking with you about music, about anything, really. I am reading from a review of Fixes and Elixirs, your last record, in Shindig magazine, the March 2020 issue. This is Kenneth Crystal's survey of the power pop landscape. He says, bursting at the seams with warm melodies, cool chord changes, and the kind of background vocals you don't hear much in today's power pop. One of the best additions to the canon in recent months, without doubt. Absolutely stunning. Were you stunned when that album took off so quickly? Yeah, I really was. It was an incredibly surprising thing when it took off like that, because up until then, you know, I'd been writing and recording these records just in my house. They were really lo-fi kind of bedroom pop music that, you know, I was just making for myself, really, just to get it out of my head. And um, I just really didn't expect anyone to pick up on it or notice it in that way, in a big way like that. I have to mention this before we get too far along, that we have a lot of musicians on the pod, and it's the nature of the beast. Everybody's promoting something, a record or tour or something, and that's part of the whole thing. But I have to say, I have always found you to be Uh, rather disinclined to go on at length about yourself and your music for a rock star. Not that you won't talk about it, because you're one of the most vulnerable people I've talked to as well, but I enjoy our conversations because they are conversations rather than a series of talking points that I get ahead of time from a publicist or manager or something like that. (laughs) Well, you know, maybe that's because I've gotten so used to releasing the music in a vacuum and nobody really listens to it, you know? The interest in it is pretty recent, so maybe it's just that I'm still not totally used to talking about it much. I mean, mean, I'm always happy to talk about it, my music, and music generally, but for the longest time I was just writing and recording and, you know, printing up 25 CDs for family and friends. It wasn't much of a going concern for anybody. Except yourself. 
Except myself, yeah, right. And I had just had such an enormous amount of music written and built up inside of me that about 2013, 2014, I had, I had to just start making it and getting it out, even if nobody heard it. It was important to you to do it. Yeah, it was important to me. I think it's a good reminder that the creative act, taking creative action, is always important, regardless of popular outcomes or receptions or sales. At the end of the day, it's important that you do it. That's absolutely right. Otherwise, it just rolls around in your head and ends up driving you sort of crazy. Well, I'm certainly glad that you did take action and that you continue to take action so we can enjoy those wonderful melodies and harmonies. It's very special stuff. Thank you so much, Reg. That really means a lot. I know it's probably impossible to answer this question completely, but where does the Frederick Julius music come from? I've noticed you have a habit of describing your music as happy, sad songs, which seems like a good general description, but when I'm listening to it, it doesn't really tell the whole story. Like, it's wonderful for marketing, but listening to albums like Fixes and Elixirs, and especially Lonely Boy, your newest, there's a lot going on there. And just to be clear, I'm not asking about how you come up with ideas for songs, what techniques you employ or what your process is. I guess I'm asking more about where does it all originate? Where does it all live? What's the place inside you that the music comes from? Oh, wow. I don't know if anybody's ever asked me that before. Do you really want me to answer that? Like, um, like not for marketing or like, uh, here's a nice little chunk of 250 words that'll fit perfectly in Pitchfork's listicle. Yeah, I really do. I would love to know. He spends almost a full minute with his head bowed, running his hands through his long, disheveled, dirty blonde mane, followed by a slow, drawn-out sigh that drops his shoulders about two inches. Hmm. He spends another whole minute with his hands folded in front of his lips, jaw resting on them while he looks somewhere off past my shoulder, before shifting his eyes and staring right at me. Is he about to cry? It comes from two weeks in Summerfall of 1987. Summerfall? You know what a portmanteau is? Yes, Summerfall isn't technically a portmanteau, though. But you get the idea. I think so. Yeah, you know how it's not summer anymore, school's starting, so you can just get a glimpse of things getting a little darker, a little colder, but there's just enough summer left that even the thought of that still has a bit of a auburn highlight to it. Like a watercolor with really saturated tangerine that bleeds out and into a pool of sky blue before dissolving into an unbroken wash of midnight, like that. Maybe the whole thing has the slightest spidery streaks of violet undergirding it. Who talks like this? But it's also now clearer to me how he might put some of his lyrics together. So, summer and fall, all happening at once, all at the same time. Right, yeah, all happening at the same time. He is in earnest, and now there are definitely some tears gathering on his cheeks. Like a watercolor. Everything running together. Summerfall. That's where the music comes from. That's where the music comes from. Two weeks. Summerfall. 1987. I was in that stretch of being 13 where everything runs together. 
Still one or two games to play, but baseball is essentially over, and your bat doesn't crack quite the same as it did around the 4th of July. I took note of this, but at the same time, things were splintering loudly elsewhere. At home, things had gotten really loud. Really loud and really quiet all at the same time. Splintering in whispers. All the sound and everything that's still there when all the sound fades out. The fractured roar of my dad's lion lungs. The swelling silence of my mom's true heart, saving space for me and my brother. A brave whisper. Whispers between me and my friends about girls arriving like mystery ships in the uneasy harbor of our small town after uncharted voyages from another small town that we only ever whispered about. The unending reverberation of plunging toward those girls, all of them singing a chorus we'd imagined for them, as if replacing their voices would transform us from boys playing in the dirt to the powerful free rangers we imagined men to be. In two weeks and the entire sunburnt anthem softening and spiraling down into my pencil, whispering lonely lines into my notebook whenever I could draw the strength to retreat. Whenever I could draw, I've been drawing since I was two years old. There's actually a story that my dad used to tell me about it, one of those family myths that's cloaked in shadow and trimmed with a reluctant pride. In the story, he gives me a sheet of his drafting paper and a technical pen, and I promptly draw a coffee mug and a set of human teeth with an accuracy and amount of detail that's inexplicable for someone so little. His words. Actually, I think that's where I learned the word inexplicable. I remember when we first knew you could draw, is how he always begins it. It's a simple little origin story, but when my dad would tell it, his eyes would widen with the sort of wonder a child always recognizes and then immediately widens back into themselves, like heroes affirming each other as they stroll through the pantheon. The weird thing is that it's one of the few stories my dad has ever told me about myself. As he'd describe the details of my prowess to me, the warm ribbons of his voice would wrap me in a humming electric fuzz. He would usually end it by saying something like, That was the very first thing that came out of him. There wasn't even any scribbling. It was perfect. Perfect. My dad will pay attention if I'm perfect. It's not all as pencil and ink as that, though. For all the times my dad recounted the emergence of my breathtaking gift, it was my mom who saved the drawings and hung them up or helped me make books out of them by sitting down and typing the stories I spoke out loud before I could write. My mom was the person who somehow made sure I had good pencils and pens and markers despite our lack of funds and our relative captivity on a rural acreage so far from anywhere you'd be able to buy them that special trips had to be made. Dads tell stories. Moms do work. And my dad's story about my drawing seeped into me so deep that by that summer, it was no longer a source of exalted personal glory. It was a heavy, humid weight I carried around while collecting compliments and clamoring for a crown. Even before 13, I'd long since crossed over from the pure bliss of expression into the more precarious realm of using my talent to attract the attention I wasn't getting. By the time I was riding the bus to school in first grade, my gift had become something of a performance, a flashy and impressive skill deployed in who-can-draw-better contests 
with kids who were clueless marks in the back seats. At best, a kid might be able to do a crude copy of Garfield from memory, but nothing from scratch straight out of the imagination or real life. By sixth grade, I had won the Hamlo Elementary School Carnival Poster Contest six times and was the undisputed champion of freehand drawing, as though there's any other kind. The only time I lost was to Jason Ryan in second grade, and his poster design was a straight-up line-for-line copy of a Ziggy cartoon where Ziggy has his nose resting on a ledge and a worm inches by and says, Come to the Hamlo School Carnival. I was pretty sure he copied it right off of one of his folders, but I didn't get too bent out of shape because that year my drawing of the anatomy of a grasshopper got picked for the Nebraska school's traveling art exhibit, so people outside of Waverly were getting to see my stuff. I got into that thing four times in a row. The Lancaster County Bank even bought a watercolor sketch I made of the grain elevators and hung it in the lobby and printed postcards from it, and a lady would hand you one as you left if you were making a deposit. From time to time, the local newspaper would run one of my cartoons, and then my mom would get letters from teachers or friends' moms or prominent elderly ladies from the Methodist church out by where we lived that had the clipping. One week in fourth grade, our refrigerator was plastered with nine identical clippings of my cartoon. Seeing them all lined up like that on probably the most important door in the house really did make me feel like some sort of hero. And when I stepped out of sixth grade and into the summer heat, almost the entire school considered me a real artist, an absolute killer, pretty much perfect. Except for my dad, it seemed like the whole town was paying attention. To someone just driving through, there's no difference between small towns. They're quick gray spots, punctuation for run-on sentences of soybeans and corn that coalesce into endless patchwork paragraphs of green with a ceaseless plodding rhythm. Passing a small town is just a sudden break in the deafening silence of the country, a casual prompt that you're actually going somewhere and not being swallowed up by the earth. If you live in one, the difference is absolute. Waverly. Eagle. They sound like they belong together. They both conjure a vague idea of soaring. Wave. Waverly. An early wind lifting you eagerly. Eagle. Like maybe both places hope to be a little more than remote clusters of congregants beneath the vast rural tent. Twin towns atop the prairie, both suggestive of flags. They sound like they belong together, but they don't, and the people in each town know it. Although I lived on a farm eight miles out and was at a slight remove from the community, Waverly was my hometown, and I knew the favor with which its residents looked upon themselves. Compared to Eagle, Waverly thought of itself as forward and modern. The houses were newer and bigger. The neighborhoods had smooth streets. It was big enough to have a grocery store and a hardware store, its own newspaper, public parks, and a swimming pool. Waverly High School and Junior High were the central hub of education for the vast, consolidated school district that in the 1950s had consumed smaller outlying villages and towns like Walton and Alvo and Eagle. 
Waverly was the place everybody came, and if you called it home, you felt it was good and bright and in little need of improvement. Eagle was more like the haphazard offshoot of a truck stop. It was small and old, and its lone gas station was small and old and was always being watched by the ancient begrimed grade school that hunkered down in a miserable brick heap up on the hill. There was a dirt racetrack two miles east that hosted stock and sprint car events and was sometimes called America's Fastest Third Mile, mostly by the couple who owned it. In fact, speed and neglect were the major articles of Eagle's wardrobe. It was disheveled, unkempt, and looked like a sour-smelling wind had blown trash all over the yards and streets, and you just sort of drove by as quickly as you could, not stopping unless you absolutely had to. I had only ever been there to play baseball on the dilapidated fields that sported rocks and clumps of crabgrass, but I imagined that life for a kid in Eagle consisted of wandering aimlessly around, trying to figure out how to break up the slow, steady pervasiveness of nothing. Maybe that's how those girls became fast.
This episode of Lonely Boy is brought to you by Sick Picnic Media. To us, you're not just a listener. You're part of this journey now, too. For exclusive updates, sneak peeks, and maybe even a free track or two, hit subscribe, follow Frederick Julius on Facebook, or sign up for our email list. Don't forget, we release new episodes on all your favorite podcast platforms every Friday. Until next time, wherever you are and whatever you're doing, it's always a good time to imagine anything. Peace and much love. Please note, Lonely Boy is a work of fiction. Names, characters, businesses, places, events, locales, and incidents are either the products of the author's imagination or used in a fictitious manner. Any resemblance to actual persons, living or dead, or actual events is purely coincidental. Copyright 2023, Sick Picnic Media. All rights reserved, including the right to reproduce, distribute, or transmit in any form or by any means. For information regarding subsidiary rights, please contact Sick Picnic Media. Sick Picnic Media.